Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Today we are going to be starting a three-part miniseries on one of the bigger independent distributors of the mid-1980s. We're talking about Empire Pictures. Empire Pictures was the brainchild of filmmaker Charles Band. Band was born in Los Angeles in December 1951, the son of Albert Band, who had written a screenplay for John Huston's adaptation of The Red Badge of Courage earlier that year. The Parisian-born Albert Band would pack up his family in the mid-1950s and return to Europe to make a series of films in Sweden and Italy for more than 10 years before returning them to Los Angeles in the late 1960s. After graduating from high school in 1968, the younger band got to work making his name in the film industry. His first film as producer and director, for which he credited himself as Carlo Bocchino, was a softcore spoof of Bernardo Bertolucci's 1973 film Last Tango in Paris, called Last Foxtrot in Burbank. It's of absolutely no interest to anyone outside of those who are absolute completionists of either Mr. Band's work or of the co-editor of the film, a then-recent graduate of the USC Film School, John Carpenter. But because he did not give himself proper credit for this rather lousy film, Band likes to claim his first credit as producer was on the 1975 film Mansion of the Doomed a not-very-good horror film featuring one-time movie stars Richard Basehart and Gloria Graham, as well as Lance Henriksen and Vic Tabak, which was followed by his second directing effort, 1977's Crash, which starred Jose Ferrer, Lolita's Sue Lyon, and the legendary John Carradine, and a producer's credit on the 1977 softcore musical Cinderella. Band's first big success would be in the burgeoning home video market when he created the company that would soon be known as Media Home Entertainment in 1978, who would release movies such as John Carpenter's Halloween on VHS and Betamax. In 1978, he also produced the sci-fi horror film Laser Blast, which is best remembered today from its 1996 appearance as the seventh season finale episode of MST3K the final original episode to be broadcast on Comedy Central before the move to the Sci-Fi Channel. Band would strike gold again in 1981 when he formed Wizard Home Video, which would be the first company to bring the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I Spit on Your Grave, Lucio Fulci's Zombie, and a number of obscure European horror films to the American home video market. Wizard would also be one of the first companies to adapt movies like Halloween and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to the Atari 2600 video game console. Band seemingly had his finger on the pulse of where motion picture entertainment was going, and after seeing how well the 1981 3D film Comin' At You was performing, he rushed to make his next film, Parasite, a 3D movie. The film would feature Demi Moore in her first major role, and would be a moderate success in the spring of 1982, before the glut of very bad 3D movies hit theaters in the following 12 months, to effectively kill the gimmick for another 20 years. But while Parasite was a decent moneymaker for Embassy Pictures, Band did not receive as much of the cut of the box office receipts as he would have preferred. And he would see foreign film reps take his other films to markets like AFM, Khan, and MIFID, and make huge commissions on the films he wrote, financed, produced, and or directed. So in early 1983, after directing another 3D movie, Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin, Charles Band decided to form his own independent production and distribution company, which he called Empire Entertainment. What Band would be doing is what companies like Canon Films and Trauma Films had been doing for years, come up with an idea, assign a writer and producer and sometimes a director to the project, have the art department come up with some kind of conceptual artwork that could be put on a poster or in an ad, and then try to pre-sell that idea to foreign distributors. 
if he could get enough foreign companies to guarantee money for the film once it was completed, he could go to a financier and use the guarantees to get the money to go make the movie. If one was a good enough salesperson, one could conceivably make a profit on a film before ever shooting a frame of film by selling individual territory rights for more than what you expect to spend while making the movie. In May 1983, Empire Entertainment made its first mark at the 1983 Cannes Film Market, which runs concurrent with the more famous film festival, selling two titles already in production, Sword Kill and Journeys Through the Dark Zone 3D, as well as a planned sequel to Parasite, which was also planned for 3D. Parasite 2 and 3D was never made, but the other two films would be amongst Empire Entertainment's first American theatrical releases through their distribution arm, Empire Pictures. Now, remember, box office numbers weren't as easily available in the 1980s as they are today, and even the most popular box office tracking websites have huge holes in their databases for this time frame. I will do my best to give you those numbers when they are available, but for many of these films, I may be only able to give rounded estimates at best. I'm also only going to be covering the first three and a half years of theatrical releases of Empire Pictures with this episode, because to also try to fit in the latter two years would stretch the episode to its breaking point. So we'll get to those on the next episode. The first movie Empire Pictures would release into theaters was The Dungeon Master, which I mentioned a moment ago as one of the first films Empire Entertainment sold at the 1983 Cannes Film Market under the title Journeys Through the Dark Side 3D. But since 3D was dead by the end of 1983, thanks to Jaws 3D and Friday the 13th Part 3 in 3D and The Man Who Wasn't There 3D and, and Metal Storm 3D, well, the movie would only use one of the camera images and be exhibited only in 2D. An attempt to mash up Dungeons and Dragons with Tron, The Dungeon Master was an anthology movie about a young computer programmer who was transported to a nightmarish hellscape by a demonic sorcerer who wishes to fight the programmer for the hand of his girlfriend. The trick on this film is that each of the seven sequences was written and directed by a different team. Jeffrey Byron, who starred in the band-directed Metal Storm, is the programmer and the unifying part of each storyline. But imagine how crazy the film is that it's only 73 minutes long, but it has seven separate sequences. Now, most sources will tell you that the movie opened in February of 1985, but the film would actually open first in Salt Lake City on August 24, 1984, and would play in additional smaller markets before opening on 57 screens in the greater Los Angeles area on February 1, 1985. In a full-page ad in the March 6, 1985 issue of Variety, part of a 13-page spread tied into the about-to-start American film market, it is noted that The Dungeon Master had already grossed $3.29 million while only having played in 34% of the American theatrical markets. I should also note that because of the similarities between the film and the popular RPG game, ads for The Dungeon Master were forced to say, quote, This motion picture is not related in any manner to the TSR Incorporated game entitled Dungeons & Dragons or any characters contained within. You can see a copy of the ad on this podcast page at filmjerk.com, as well as other Empire Pictures materials related to the films we're discussing on this episode. Empire would next distribute, but not produce, the Robert Forster-led crime action film Walking the Edge, which would have a regional release in the southern United States on January 11, 1985. Forster plays a cab driver in Los Angeles who helps a recent widow, played by Nancy Kwan, to take revenge on the gang, led by the legendary Joe Spinell, who killed her husband and son. Michael Wilmington would begin his review in the Los Angeles Times for Luca Bercovici's Ghoulies, 
which opened in 61 theaters in the Los Angeles region on January 18, 1985, as such. Quote, The advertising graphics for Ghoulies shows a repulsive little monster with a gapped fang grin rising from the toilet. For once, the ads brilliantly capture a movie's essence. The toilet is exactly where the Ghoulies belong. And he's not wrong. Ghoulies was a massive turd, with, outside of a few sight gags featuring the creatures, including the aforementioned toilet gag, has no redeeming qualities whatsoever. The film stars Peter Leipis as a college student who, after discovering his late father's occult paraphernalia, accidentally calls up the titular characters. The film would also be the movie debut of future Law & Order SVU star Mariska Hargitay. But that ad, along with the tagline, They'll get you in the end, is exactly what got me and my buddies excited to see the movie. That ad, featuring one of the makeup effect artists John Carl Beekler's puppet creatures, helped propel the film to a more than $7.1 million gross from only 350 theaters in a mere four weeks, according to that same March 1985 variety ad as The Dungeon Master which went to print before it opened in 99 theaters in New York City on March 1st. The film was successful enough to spawn three sequels between 1987 and 1994. And while a lot of people think Ghoulies is a quickie knockoff of Gremlins, Ghoulies would start production in January 1984 after five months of pre-production, around the same time that Gremlins was also in production. The second half of May 1984 would see two movies directed by Charles Band to get released in a nine-day period. The first, Trancers, would start its regional release on Wednesday, May 22nd. Like Ghoulies, Trancers seemed like it was a quickie knockoff to another recent hit film. See if this sounds familiar. A police detective from the 23rd century travels back to the 1980s to bring his old nemesis to justice. But like how Ghoulies was in production around the same time as Gremlins, Trancers was in production at the same time as James Cameron's The Terminator, and was first released in the United Kingdom just two weeks after The Terminator had been released in America. Comedic actor Tim Thomerson would star as Jack Death, the cop from the future. But instead of having to get naked in order to travel through time, Jack and his nemesis are able to travel back in time by injecting themselves with a drug that allows them to take over the body and consciousness of one of their ancestors. Helen Hunt would get her first leading role seven years after her last movie role as George Siegel's daughter in Roller Coaster as the girlfriend of Death's 1985 ancestor. Trancers is quite possibly the best of the 68 movies that Band has directed as of January 2021. I don't know, I haven't watched them all. But while box office grosses for Trancers are not readily available, the film did well enough both at theaters and on home video to spawn no less than five sequels, the first two of which would also star Miss Hunt until her starring role in the 1992 NBC sitcom Mad About You would preclude her from being featured in future episodes. There's actually a sixth sort of sequel, which we'll talk about in the next episode. The following Friday, May 31st, would see the release of The Alchemist. Well, to be fair, Band was the second director on the film. The first, Craig Mitchell, would leave the $500,000 production after only three days, and Band was hired to come in and finish the remaining seven days of filming. The movie had been shot in 1981 and was originally planned as actor Robert Ginty's follow-up to the successful independent film The Exterminator. But this film, about a man who seeks revenge on an evil magician who placed a curse on him, would sit on the proverbial shelf for four years until Band bought the American theatrical rights because he needed more films in his distribution pipeline to keep things moving. And that's about all The Alchemist did. 
It wasn't their biggest hit when it was released theatrically beginning on October 18, 1985, but Stuart Gordon's Reanimator would be the movie that would define Empire's legacy. Herbert West is at the top of his class in medical school. How can you teach such drivel? These people are here to learn and you're closing their minds before they even have a chance. What are He's you? brilliant, but a little weird. I've broken the six to 12 minute barrier. I've conquered brain death. His experiments have always been unorthodox. It was dead. But lately they're getting on his hands. And he's just made a discovery that could wake up the dead. Herbert West has affected reanimation in dead animal tissue. What are you thinking? How do you feel? Once you wake up the dead, you've got a real mess on your hands. Herbert, you're insane! Now what happened? I had to kill him! He's dead? Not anymore. Herbert West brought a lot of dead people back to life, and not one of them showed any appreciation. H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale of horror, Reanimator. Mr. West. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. It will scare you to pieces. Gordon was a famed theater director in Chicago. Having helped to bring Bleacher Bums and David Mamet's sexual perversity in Chicago to the stage as part of the Organic Theater Company, whose actors included Dennis Farina, Dennis Franz, Joe Mantegna, Gary Sandy, Tom Towles, and George Wendt. The 1984 CBS sitcom ER, starring Elliot Gould, Mary McDonnell, and yes, George Clooney, was based on one of Gordon's plays for The Organic. Gordon would move from Chicago to Los Angeles in the early 1980s in order to break into Hollywood, and one of the ideas he would bring with him was the idea of churning H.P. Lovecraft's 1922 serialized story, Herbert West Reanimator, into a half-hour television show. Gordon, with his organic writers Dennis Paoli and William Norris, were planning on keeping the story's original setting at the turn of the century, but realized that it would make the pilot and any possible series that might come from it too expensive to produce. They would rework the story to take place in modern-day Chicago and would write an entire 13-episode season worth of scripts. With the assistance of would-be producer Brian Usna, Gordon and his team would whittle the story down to just the first two parts of Lovecraft's original story and would make a distribution deal with Band in return for post-production services. Production on the $900,000 film would begin on November 28, 1984 in Los Angeles and would continue through the first week of 1985. Jeffrey Combs stars as Herbert West, a young medical student who must change schools from Switzerland to Massachusetts after he brings his dead professor back to life. He continues to work on his reanimating reagent in his basement laboratory with horrifying consequences. The film also stars Bruce Abbott, Barbara Crampton, and David Gale. One special effects artist on the film would note in an interview for the film that it was the bloodiest movie he had yet worked on, as director Gordon used 12 times the amount of fake blood on set as would usually be used on a movie. The gory footage would scare audiences wherever the film played, and Empire Pictures decided to forego getting the film rated by the MPAA for fear of getting an X rating. This decision, while keeping Gordon's vision of the film intact, would limit the number of theaters the film would play in 
and the number of newspapers that would accept advertising for non-rated films. The film would make its world premiere at the 1985 Cannes Film Festival and Market, where it would receive an unusual amount of favorable reviews for a horror film, and it would receive its first public screening at the Royal Theater in San Francisco, beginning a four-week exclusive run on August 30th, before opening in 129 theaters on October 18th. While the film would open in 14th place with nearly $544,000 in ticket sales, its per-screen average of $4,214 would be the highest of any film in the top 15. In its second week, the film would add another 56 screens and its gross would increase to $620,000. But in week three, most horror audiences would move on to the much-anticipated sequel to A Nightmare on Elm Street, and Reanimator would lose more than half its previous week audience. Empire would stop tracking the film a couple weeks later, with just over $2 million in ticket sales. Not a huge success, but considering Empire was unable to do any television advertising on the film due to the lack of a rating, the film would eke out a modest profit. There would be two sequels for the film, in 1990 and in 2003, both featuring Combs as Herbert West, but neither Stuart Gordon nor Empire would have any involvement in them. One thing Charles Band did very well with Empire was establish a small inner circle of writers, producers, directors, and actors whom he would work with over and over again. Ted Nicolau, was one of those who would benefit from his working relationship with Band. After making his directorial debut on one of the segments of The Dungeon Master, Nicolau would be tasked with taking the footage from two Italian exploitation movies from 1980, Hotel Paradise and Escape from Hell, and editing them together, as well as shooting 10 minutes of new footage featuring Exorcist star Linda Blair and comic magician Penn Gillette in his film debut, to try and make sense of it all. The film would arrive in limited release on September 27th, but it didn't work very well. Nicolau would be rewarded for his efforts, though, by making more than 30 more films for band over the next 35 years. Two other people who would benefit from their working relationship with Charles Band were the writing team of Danny Bilson, and Paul DeMau. After their screenplay for Trancers was produced and directed by Band, the pair would be given the green light to make their next screenplay Zone Troopers, with Bilson as director and DeMeo as producer. Trancers star Tim Thomerson stars as the leader of an American patrol in Italy during World War II who discover an alien spaceship that has crash-landed in the woods and decide to assist the aliens in recovering one of the survivors of the crash, who is being tested on by nearby Nazis. Art Lafleur, Biff Menard, and Timothy Van Patten round out the patrol team. Bilson and DeMeo would continue working with Band for several more years, before going on to create the 1990 television version of The Flash, and writing the screenplay for the 1991 adaptation of Dave Stevens's The Rocketeer, DeMeo would pass away in 2018, while Bilson works as the director of USC Games, a joint education program managed by the school's School of Cinematic Arts and School of Engineering. Their most recently produced screenplay, written in 2013, was sold to Netflix and Spike Lee just after DeMeo's passing. The resulting film, Defy Bloods, could earn the pair their first-ever Oscar nominations. The Italian horror-adventure film Chiave Bianche, Violenzia in Amazonia, would get picked up by Empire Films, given an English dub soundtrack, and released in regional American markets as White Slave, beginning on October 2nd. You might know it better under the title it was released under when it came out on home video and on cable, Cannibal Holocaust 2, although it has nothing to do with the infamous 1980 film. 
nor should it be confused with the 1988 movie The Green Inferno, which would also be titled Cannibal Holocaust 2 when it was released on home video and cable. Yet another person who would benefit from working with Charles Band was John Carl Beekler. Beekler would get his start doing makeup work for Roger Corman's New World Pictures in the 1970s. Buechler would jump ship to work with Band on the promise that he could open his own effects outfit, which Beekler would call Mechanical and Makeup Imageries, could work on projects outside of Empire, and would be able to make his own films. As a sign of good faith, Band would give Beekler not only the makeup and effects work on The Dungeon Master, but allowed him to direct one of the segments. After creating The Ghoulies, and a number of the makeup effects for Reanimator, Beekler was given the go-ahead to direct his first full-length feature film in 1985, the fantasy comedy horror film Troll. Michael Moriarty and Shelley Hack play Harry and Ann Potter, a couple who move their family to San Francisco, where a troll who lives in the laundry room uses his magic ring to possess the Potter's young daughter Wendy Ann and starts to turn the apartments into forests and its residents into fairy tale creatures. The film features one of the more interesting casts we'll feature on this show, including the never ending stories Noah Hathaway, Sonny Bono, Gary Sandy from WKRP in Cincinnati, Lost in Space's June Lockhart, and two recent performers from Saturday Night Live, Brad Hall and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. When you watch the movie, it's hard to imagine all of it cost only $1 million to make, and audiences would embrace the film at least for one week. When it opened on 959 screens on January 19, 1986, the film would gross more than $2.5 million. But in that second week, despite only one new opener, the rather flaccid sex comedy My Chauffeur, Troll would lose more than 56% of its audience and would end its theatrical run several weeks later with $5.45 million in ticket sales. Two weeks after Troll, Empire Films would release Eliminators. A downed pilot is resurrected by a pair of time-traveling scientists who turn him into a half-man, half-android and then abandon their little science experiment after a series of tests. Rather unhappy at the possibility of dying again, the Mandroid rebels against his creators, teaming up with the sexy scientist responsible for his android technology, her pet robot, a rough-and-tumble riverboat guide, and a martial arts warrior. Together, they are the Eliminators. Eliminators was another screenplay from the writing team of Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo and would feature Andrew Prine, Denise Crosby, Patrick Reynolds, and Conan Lee as the Eliminators. At a cost of nearly $2 million, Eliminators would be Empire's most expensive film to date. But when it opened on 993 screens on January 31st, it would end up grossing only $1.98 million. And like Troll, it would lose more than 55% of its audience in the second week. It would be gone from theaters a few weeks later, with a final gross of only $4.6 million. Five months after White Slave, Ted Nicolau would be back, this time with his first actual movie, Terror Vision. The horror comedy film featured Garrett Graham, Mary Warrenov, Diane Franklin and Chad Allen as your average, ordinary American family, whose new satellite TV system starts receiving signals from another planet and becomes the passageway to an alien world. Like many Empire films, the best thing about the film is its poster, a single eyeball staring out from the center of a satellite dish which is hooked up to every house in the neighborhood. And the tagline, People of Earth. Your planet is about to be destroyed. We're terribly sorry for the inconvenience. The film would open in 256 theaters on Valentine's Day 
and gross an anemic $320,000, and Empire would stop tracking the film after those first three days. And the reviews were horrible. Janet Maslin of the New York Times hated it. Patrick Goldstein of the Los Angeles Times hated it, as did the reviewers for the Chicago Tribune and Variety. And to this day, Terrorvision still holds a 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Today, we know Clive Barker as one of the best and brightest minds in horror cinema thanks to movies like Hellraiser and Candyman. But in 1984, he was still a little-known British horror writer trying to make a name for himself. He would write the screenplays for two films based on his short fiction work, the first being Underworld. Directed by George Pavlow, Underworld would bring together some of Britain's best acting talents, including Stephen Burkhoff, Denholm Elliott, Art Malik, and Miranda Richardson, in a story about a sinister biochemist who has created a species of subhumans who live under the streets of London. The film would do okay in its native homeland, but in America, the film would only be released in a very limited theatrical engagement under the name Transmutations, beginning on April 18th. We'll talk about that second film he wrote a screenplay for, and how these two films would make him into the icon we know today, a little later on this episode. Tim Kincaid's Breeders would arrive in theaters on May 2nd. A New York City police detective and a doctor at a local hospital team up to uncover the mystery of five women, all virgins, who were all accosted under mysterious circumstances. But instead of it being a twisted serial rapist, they discover an unstoppable alien presence has taken residence in an abandoned section of the city's subway system and has begun reproducing by impregnating human women. The film features no one you've ever heard of and would die a very quick and ignoble death at the box office. Kincaid would shoot this movie and another, Mutant Hunt, back-to-back -back in New York City, but the second film would go direct-to-video through Empire's dedicated genre banner, Beyond Infinity, in June 1987. David Schmoller's Crawl Space is probably the most interesting film in the Empire catalog. When he was working on the screenplay the first time around in the early 1980s, the story was supposed to be an anti-Vietnam War allegory about a young veteran who, having trouble readjusting to society, builds a POW camp in his attic. Band would read the script and ask the writer-director if he would be willing to rewrite the script to turn the protagonist into a Nazi, provided Band could get Klaus Kinski to play the role. Schmoller would rewrite the film, Band would get Kinski, and the film would begin production in Rome in November 1985. American actress Talia Balsam would star as the new tenant in an apartment building in which Kinski's character is the superintendent, who discovers the older man's horrific secret life. Originally scheduled for an eight-week shooting schedule, production would stretch on into the first week of March 1986 because of Kinski's eccentricities and the interruptions he would cause. But even with the extended production schedule, Schmoller would still have the film ready for its scheduled May 21st release. Maybe he should have taken more time. The contemporary reviews were brutal, although some modern critics have found some positive things to say about the film. But the best thing about the movie would end up being something David Schmoller would make years later, a short nine-minute video essay, which he recounts his time working with Klaus Kinski on the film. The video essay has a title he claims most of the crew members would ask him to do repeatedly during the production. Please, kill Mr. Kinski. It was around this time, in June 1986, when Charles Band would make two purchases intended to help Empire Pictures as a filmmaking unit, but would end up breaking the company. First, Band had the opportunity to purchase Castello di Giove, 
a 140-room 12th century castle 30 miles northeast of Rome. And then Band had the opportunity to purchase the Deno de Laurentiis Cinematografica, a mostly functional studio just southeast of Rome, where the famed Italian producer would shoot a number of his biggest productions in the 1960s, but had sat mostly unused for more than a decade. The plan was to use the studio to shoot the bulk of Empire's movies and the castle for both production and housing of cast and crew. The first Empire movie that would utilize both locations was Rafal Zielinski's Spellcaster, featuring future NYPD blue star Gail O'Grady, musician Adam Ant, and Los Angeles radio DJ Richard Blade, and would shoot in July of 1986, but would not get released until Columbia TriStar Home Video put it out six years later. To buy both, Band would borrow more than $30 million from Credit Lyonnais, the French banking giant. After finding some success with Reanimator, Band would rush to get the whole team back together for another Lovecraft adaptation. This time, director Stuart Gordon, writers Dennis Paoli and Brian Usna, cinematographer Mac Alberg, and stars Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton would take a stab at From Beyond, which Lovecraft wrote in 1920, but would not get published until 1934. Combs and Crampton played Dr. Crawford Tillinghast and Dr. Catherine McMichaels, a pair of scientists attempting to stimulate the human pineal gland with a device called the resonator. But an unforeseen result of their experiment is the ability to perceive creatures from another planet, who then proceed to drag their head scientist, Dr. Edward Pretorius, into their world, returning him as a grotesque, shape-shifting monster who preys upon the others at the laboratory. Band would elect to have From Beyond shot at the new Empire Studios in Rome, which he says reduced the potential budget of the film from $15 million if it was shot in America to just $2.5 million shooting in Italy. But lightning would not strike twice for Gordon and company. Opening on 190 screens on October 24th, nearly double the number of screens Reanimator had opened on, From Beyond would only gross $514,000 in its first three days, about $45,000 less than Reanimator's opening weekend. And in its second week of release, From Beyond would lose a third of its opening week screens and more than 44% of its audience. After 10 weeks, From Beyond would leave theaters with a final gross of $1.26 million. Another name we will see on a lot of Empire films, both released theatrically and directed video, is David Decotel. Dakotao is another former member of Roger Corman's production team at New World who would get poached by band with the lure of moving up from below-the-line gigs to directing. In fact, between Empire Pictures and band's later company, Full Moon Pictures, Dakotao would be the director band would use most often, whose name wasn't Charles Band. Dakotao had been working as a director in gay porn under a variety of pseudonyms, but Dream Maniac would be his first non-porn directing gig, and the first where he would be credited under his own name. It might not have been hardcore porn, but it was about as porny as a softcore horror sex film could get. A heavy metal musician makes a deal with a satanic succubus to make himself successful with women, in return for the succubus being able to feed on the girls. It's pretty lame with mostly a cast you've never heard of, except for Michael Warren, the Emmy-nominated actor on the NBC police drama Hill Street Blues. What he was doing in a low-budget horror sex movie that only cost $60,000 to make, roughly 5% of the cost of a single episode of Hill Street Blues to produce, I can't figure out. Hoping to ride the coattails of a successful horror franchise from another distributor, Dream Maniac 
would be sold with the tagline, You don't have to live on Elm Street to have nightmares. But it might have helped. Dream Maniac would only open in a handful of theaters in the South, usually the bottom half of a double feature at drive-ins and dollar houses, on November 26th. If you're a fan of cheesy bad 80s movies, you know the name Albert Pian. From Sword and the Sorcerer to Alien from L.A. to Deceit and Cyborg, Albert Pian knew how to make a bad but mildly entertaining movie. I have some great cyborg trivia I'm saving for our Canon Films miniseries coming soon. But for now, we're going to spend about 47 seconds or so talking about his rock and roll sci-fi horror comedy film, Wicked Lips. In the distant future, four luscious young ladies in a rock band are given the opportunity of a lifetime to perform at a popular nightclub. But the problem is the nightclub is on a far-off planet and they have little to no resources to get there. It's yet another low-budget empire film with no stars and no aesthetics. And the film would get a very limited theatrical release in mid-February 1987, and then would go virtually unseen until a Blu-ray of the film was released in 2013. Remember earlier when I mentioned Clive Barker had written two movies, that would be distributed by Empire. The second one was called Rawhead Rex, and it would tell the story of an Irish writer who takes his family to the countryside while he does some research for a book he's working on about Irish myths and legends, and in the process comes across a mythical creature called, well, Rawhead Rex, who starts to terrorize the writer and his family and all the citizens of a small rural town. Despite writing the screenplay, Barker hated everything about the movie, especially the design of the title character, who he felt looked like nothing from the character he created for both his screenplay and the original story it's based on. In fact, Barker was so pissed off that he would direct the next screen adaptation of one of his stories himself and he would make sure the creatures were exactly the way he expected them to be. That film would be known during production as Sadomasochists from Beyond the Grave, but you know it better as Hellraiser. But the $2 million Rawhead Rex would only get a token American theatrical release beginning April 17th. One week later, on April 24th, Empire would open the Princess Academy on 53 screens in Los Angeles. Lar Park Lincoln, who would star in Friday the 13th Part 7 the following year, stars as a young woman who starts to attend an elite international private school that teaches rich young women how to behave like proper ladies. Ava Gabor, from Green Acres, plays the school's owner, and Lou Leonard, the strict, snobbish, and brutish head teacher, Fräulein Stinkenschmidt, regularly called, quote, porkies for girls, unquote, audiences stayed away in droves. After a few other regional openings during late spring, the Princess Academy would only gross $205,000. And one week after that, on May 1st, Empire would unleash Gorman Bicard's Psychos in Love on an Unsuspecting World. A strip joint owner and a manicurist find that they have many things in common, including that they are both psychotic serial killers. But can their love survive when they meet a plumber who happens to be a cannibal? If torture porn like Saw, Hostel, and the Human Centipede are your thing, then you'll love Psychos in Love. For me, the only thing memorable about the movie is, once again, its poster, which features a man and a woman kissing for the first time as husband and wife, as he stabs the maid of honor in the heart with a knife, and she shoves a chainsaw into the face of the best man. I can't deny, it is effective advertising. 
Empire would open two movies on May 22nd in opposite regions of the United States. The first, Peter Manoogian's Enemy Territory, would feature Ghostbusters singer Ray Parker Jr. in a rare acting role, alongside Jan Michael Vincent and Gary Frank. The residents of a New York City housing project live in fear of the vampires, a brutish gang who controls the building. Tony Todd, Stacy Dash, and Kadeem Hardison would get early pre-stardom roles in the film. The movie would open in 67 theaters in the greater New York City tri-state area and would continue playing throughout the summer and early fall, finishing with a small three-theater run in Portland, Oregon on October 30th. The other film would be Stuart Gordon's third film for Empire, a much different affair than Reanimator or From Beyond. While the film would be a horror film, and he would be working with producer Brian Usna and cinematographer Mac Alberg for the third time, Gone would be the stars of the previous films Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton. And this film, Dolls, would not be an adaptation of an H.P. Lovecraft story, but an original screenplay by Ed Naha. Six people seek shelter during a storm in the mansion of an elderly puppet master and his wife, only to discover the various toys in the home contain the imprisoned spirits of criminals. The film would first open on 50 screens in Los Angeles on May 22nd, and would move around the country throughout the summer before finishing with a series of playdates in New York, beginning on November 6th. When all was said and done, Dolls would have sold more tickets than either Reanimator or From Beyond, more than $3.5 million in tickets. And the film would be an important film for its writer, producer, and director, for it was during breaks in filming at Empire Studios in Rome that Gordon, Yuzna, and Naha would come up with the idea for a kid-friendly horror film called Teeny Weenies. The three would end up selling the idea to Disney, of all companies, and Gordon was scheduled to direct the film until an illness prevented him from making it. Today, you know that film as Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Sequels would become a very important part of band's next company, Full Moon Features. But for Empire Pictures, there would only be one sequel, Ghoulies 2, which was a band family affair. Charles Band would produce the film with his father Albert, who would also direct the film, the first film for the elder band since 1979's Scott Glenn cowboy drama She Came to the Valley. Strangely, though, Richard Band, Albert's son and Charles's brother, who had composed the music for the first Ghoulies film, did not work on Ghoulies 2. This time around, the Ghoulies hitch a ride with a carnival and end up hiding in an amusement park funhouse called Satan's Den, where they cause a whole bunch of trouble. Repurposing taglines from much better movies was a staple of Empire Films' advertising MO, and Ghoulies 2 would be no different. While some ads would feature a callback to the original Ghoulies poster, with another Ghoulie coming out of a toilet, with the tagline, They'll get you in the end again, others would feature the tagline, Just when you thought it was safe to go back to the bathroom. The film would open in limited release, beginning with a few playdates in Las Vegas, on July 31st. Big movie! Big production! Big Girls, promised the poster for Ken Dixon's Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity. A big promise for a movie with only a $90,000 budget. 80s Scream Queens Brink Stevens and Elizabeth Kaitan star in this cheesy sci-fi retelling of the 1924 Richard Connell story, The Most Dangerous Game. The film would open in limited release beginning September 18th. However, the film would become somewhat infamous six years later in 1992 
when North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms specifically criticized the movie on the floor of the Senate House in his justifications for updating the Cable Act, which would have forced cable operators to block, quote, indecent, unquote, programming unless customers specifically asked for said programming in writing. But what is indecent to one might not necessarily be indecent to others, which is why Helms's efforts were struck down by a federal court justice in 1993, and then that decision upheld by the Supreme Court in 1996. October 2nd would see the release of David Dakota's Creepazoids. A group of survivors try to escape from the battles of World War III in an abandoned government research facility, only to encounter something much more deadly when they get to their destination. 80s scream queen Lene Quigley and future 90s porn star Ashlyn Gear star as two of the survivors. Move over, aliens! Here comes the Creepazoids! screamed out the tagline on poster art that promised much more than the $75,000 production could ever deliver. But you do have to give Dakota some props for stretching his budget much farther than expected, especially considering he would shoot most of his movies on 35mm film. The movie would open as part of a double feature at the Liberty Theater on 42nd Street in New York City and a few additional Tri-State Region theaters on October 2nd, along with Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity. That same double feature would also show up in Detroit two weeks later. And that, my friends, is the end of part one of this Empire Pictures miniseries. Next week, we'll be talking about the film's Empire Pictures released in 1988 and 1989, all of their direct-to-video releases, a summation of how the company would end up closing and what happened to Charles Band after the failure of Empire Pictures. I hope you'll join us. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Good night.